0: News used to be dominated by a handful of newspapers, magazines, and television stations. Well, the entire landscape has changed, led by award-winning journalist like today's guest, Jessica Yellen. From serving as CNN's chief White House correspondent to launching a cutting-edge platform dedicated to balance, Jessica is changing the way we receive and react to the news that affects our lives. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint hearted. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. Jessica, welcome to the show. I know you're coming to us from Los Angeles. As I always like to ask, how's the weather?
1: <laughs> I don't want to rub it in, but uh, I think it's 77, sunny with low humidity.
0: Uh, there you this go. why we live here. <laughs> there you go. I think you just convinced the entire audience to get on the next airplane and head west.
1: Yes, it has its benefits.
0: You recently wrote about something you refer to as trauma fatigue, which is a way of saying a lot of the news that's coming at us is full of stuff that I think has people running for Xanax as opposed <laughs> yes. to running for remedies. What does that mean, trauma fatigue? And is there anything we can do about that? Or is there just kind of the, the way the ball game is gonna be played now?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a challenging dilemma and a really good question. The basic concept is, as you say, that there's so much negative news and it's so available all the time mm. that audiences, I experience this with my own audience, feel that they're either they're turning away and I think it's part of what drives news avoidance in some contexts they're turning away but my audience I think they're getting a little bit numbed out mm-hmm. and it's an actual scientific term they've now researched this and they've discovered that if you and it's not surprising are exposed to crisis endlessly you start to feel numb to the tragedy you can't get that bothered by it and just, you know, if the news's purpose is to inform voters so they can make smart choices in an election and as members of a democracy, if the news is bombing them with so much negative information that they can't take action, it's actually ineffective. And so I think a lot about how do you remedy that? And there are a bunch of different strategies that include, I think, focusing a lot on where humans are collaborating and making progress And also, Mm. frankly, giving people sometimes a break from the news.
0: Are you talking about like good news? I mean, trying to give people something other than, oh, my God, the world might end tonight.
1: It's not exactly good news because we always joked. I came up through local news and then I did network. And there was always this thing at the end of the local newscast that we used to call the water skiing squirrel. (laughs) It's a kicker, right? (laughs) Leave them with a funny video that's Mm. a positive taste in their mouth. And they go off feeling happy after, you know, 23 minutes of crime. But it's not the water skiing squirrel and it's not, you know, dog mom reunites with cute puppy. What actually creates a change is a story that might be about a hard problem that people have worked together to address. So it's right. like reminders that while we're told that there's this polarization there's also examples of collaboration. And while we're told that human impact on the planet is having a bad effect, there are also examples of human impact having a good effect. And so it's sort of reintroducing into the bloodstream of our sort of conversation, the balance to all the negativity and reminders that there's signs of progress and hope.
0: What do you think we drifted away from the the early days of journalism where it was more like just the facts, right? Yeah. The Walter Cronkite's, the Edward R. Murrow's, all the others that kind of pioneered the, the modern business. Why is it we've now taken a, a whole nother path to trying to understand what news not only impacts us, but what it means?
1: One of the key drivers was the success and the profitability of certain early news shows. You know, in the sort of the glory days of network news that we all look back on, news was a loss leader, right? Like broadcast channels had to put out news in order to get the access to the broadcast and they didn't expect to make money. And then 60 Minutes comes along and becomes this blockbuster money-making hit very good journalism, but it was very gotcha-ish, right? And there were other examples of that. And I think networks started to realize, gosh, we can make money through the news and started reorienting in ways that they could do that, which meant driving eyeballs. And, you know, you can go deep on this. But fast forward into the late 90s, early 2000s, when All these news channels were ultimately bought by these mega corporations that started having to report to shareholders on a quarterly basis. And that means you have to show ratings growth and you have to show engagement growth and all these things all the time. The focus on profits ended up changing what we decide counts as news, I think. And so it became conventional wisdom that the way you get eyeballs is with conflict, outrage, negativity. And that has accelerated, obviously, into the 2000s and now. And I just, you know, part of the reason I do what I do is because I think there's another way to get eyeballs with empathy, compassion, caring, information, et cetera.
0: So when you were the White House correspondent with CNN and you worked with MSNBC and ABC and local news in Florida, I should say, for all of, all of our Florida you fans. You your research. Um, <laughs> you obviously had a front row to history, Jessica, mm-hmm. in so many ways. I, I remember the clip where you were reporting on election night when Barack Obama was in Grant Park. <laughs>
1: yes. That
0: must have been electric, right? That, that whole sense of, oh, my God, you know, I'm actually feeling and are surrounded by something that's never happened before in this country. What stands out to you and all the experiences? That's a tough question, by the way. We have a short show. Is there one experience that kind of crystallized for you at that moment in your career that you were doing something not only worthy, but important for the rest of us?
1: Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, I I found there are a couple of moments. I was a local reporter in Tampa in the year 2000, and I was sent to Democratic Party headquarters on election night to cover mm-hmm. the Bill Nelson race and the presidential election was called for Al Gore and then it was called for George Bush. And then we were waiting around in Tallahassee for hours and hours. I went to bed and then I got paged in the middle of the night and I was there at the heart of the recount. And that for me was a big moment because I was side by side with All of a sudden, all these national network reporters that I'd seen my whole life were flowing into Tallahassee. And there's Linda Douglas and there's like all these people, Jim Angle and all around me. And I was holding my own, doing my own reporting. And I realized, oh, I can I can do it at the big leagues. And you also are so aware of history happening. P.S. I saved so many papers from the recount. I still have them in boxes in my garage and I literally don't know what to do with them because they're history. But who needs this? Anyway, that was a moment obviously covering the Obama campaign in Iowa was so profound because I kept calling home being like, something's going on here. And home base, meaning the D.C. Bureau, would say, no, 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 Iowans just get excited. So that was sort of deep, you know, as you say, electric and remarkable Reporting on Air Force One when you're called up to the front of the cabin to meet with the president, that never gets dull. And you always feel in these moments, even in the press briefing room, that you have this responsibility to represent sort of the American public, as corny as that sounds.
0: I can see being asked up to the front section on Air Force One. I don't care how many times you've done that. That's kind of the special. It's amazing.
1: It's first of all, just any time you go to the when the helicopter comes, Marine One lands and you get on, or you get on Air Force One, you can't help but feel sort of awed by this experience. And then the Air Force One thing is always amazing because not only are you sort of buzzing with what are, what are we going to learn and what's happening and who's watching and what's going on, but also you go from the back of the plane where it's, you know, these plastic seats and these like institutional blue carpeting to the carpeting gets increasingly plush as you move toward the front of the cabin and the wood gets more burnished and shiny and (laughs) glossy. And you just feel like you're floating up to something very, uh, very special and rare.
0: Did any president ever ask for your advice meaning your perspective on something on a story that was breaking kind of off the record
1: that's interesting i've had you know when you do off the records with them they'll ask your sort of perspective often it's um why is the press making such a big deal of x right. something they think shouldn't be getting that much attention why are you all obsessed with it mm-hmm. of all the presidents and you know i've had like personal I- you know, conversations with many of them. George W. Bush is the one who feels most like you forget that he's president. Sometimes when you're talking to him as president, like he he does this thing where you remember that he's just a regular guy and then all of a sudden you snap out of it. You're like, oh my gosh, no, he's president. But I can't say that they've called me up for my unique advice on important matters of state in the way you mean.
0: <laughs> Not yet, at least. Not yet. So, so maybe you can't... get that. <laughs> all the time. All the time. You can't escape, you know, what's been, happening with your former employer, CNN. Yeah. I mean, it's making for a lot of press, not necessarily good press, but a lot of press, you know, with the departure of Jeffrey Zucker, then the new CEO comes in and there's talk about now Jeffrey Zucker is possibly making a play to get money behind an effort to to buy out CNN and all the rest. You had the firings of Don Lemon and some of the other stalwarts on the network. Here's a tough question. If you owned CNN, what would you do?
1: Oh, I love that. Well, I think that CNN's greatest strength is its ability to report on the world rapidly and accurately in crisis times. And I would lean into its ability to do that. I just had the experience when I first went to CNN of realizing the power and reach of this network and their ability to get into crisis zones, war zones, to be at, you know, an emergency location in America before the military could get there, before local law enforcement. I mean, it's strength and muscle memory for covering news is so strong. I would do more of that. And so, and I think that the reporters there are exceptional and Give them the chance to flex as much as possible and get out of the building as much as possible.
0: (laughs) Get out of the building, right? You know,
1: I I do think there's so much talent at that network and so much ability. I have just admiration and faith and belief. And I think you'll see it when the election starts to really heat up people more out in the field covering the issues that matter. That's my hope. (laughs)
0: So, Jessica, News Not Noise is a journalism platform you founded to kind of promote accurate, simply stated news. What inspired you to launch this initiative and how is this different, fundamentally different than traditional news sources today?
1: So I started it because after all these years in TV news, I discovered from talking to voters as I was covering elections that so many people felt like they cared about the information that's relevant in politics, but didn't respond to the way we were covering it. They didn't like the punditry, the focus on outrage, rage, and negativity. And they just wanted jargon explained, facts put in context, and information explained a little bit more briefly. So I decided to experiment and I put myself on Instagram before anyone was doing this. I was really one of the first people doing this in 2018 before, well before the midterms. And I started explaining what was going on. Uh, the Kavanaugh hearings were starting and I was saying, this is why this person's doing that. Here's why this break is happening here and what it's really about. And people started engaging and responding. And what I found is that they wanted news told calmly, in a way that didn't compete for their anxiety. The inverse of what we were talking about before. And so my first tagline was, um, we give you information, not a panic attack. And the idea was that we could reach especially women if we said it in a way that was different. And it worked. You know, in 2020... Based on our own surveys, I got 30,000 people to vote who hadn't voted in the prior election because wow. they said they felt like they were informed enough to do it. 330,000 people who said they took a voting-related action, like got their friends out to vote, drove people to the polling place, explained a ballot. And since then, um, we've focused also on health and the economy. And I have a very female audience, their age is 25 to 44, college-educated women who just want to know stuff from sources they trust without being made hysterical. That's it. It's that simple.
0: Calm versus a panic attack. I'm going to write that (laughs) one down. That was really good. Your fictional novel, which I don't think is all that fictional, uh, Savage News. uh,
1: (laughs) I can't really say that, but you can.
0: You talked about the Me Too movement and you talked about women in journalism. Where do both of those stand today?
1: You know, the Me Too movement is obviously still relevant, you know, we all are now conscious of these issues and concerns. I think that sort of the women's movement is at a strange place because of the Dobbs ruling and sort of the way it's reshaping political fault lines. I think that abortion rights, reproductive access, health care in general, is going to be a major issue in this election in a way that maybe isn't always discussed and centered. It is what I hear from women. And I talk to women who have voted for Trump in the past, who are centrist and lean right as well as lean left. This is a leading concern for them. And it's not just about literally the law in my state, but the concept of not being able to have this control over your own body and really their daughters. They're worried about their daughters we're seeing an evolution in the women's movement and a lot of sort of chagrin, responsibility, guilt for women who feel like they did not do the best job protecting these rights. And I will just say, you know, I'm very clearly a reproductive rights advocate. You can tell I now on my own so I can do that. Um, But I have many friends who are not. And I think that there are ways to find coalition and alliance on other issues. So I think that we're going through this very strange period of change. I also hear women talking a lot about social media Mm -hmm. and how they want controls on technology companies and that this is an emerging issue, especially for moms who are concerned about their kids. So I think we're seeing different issues emerge as relevant and important um, through a gender lens. In terms of women in journalism, you know, I think the more we have core of women in leadership. It'll change not just who's on camera, whose byline it is, but how we tell stories, what stories we tell and how they're framed. And I don't think it's like one gender is better than the other, but we live in a world where there's a mix. And so the mix needs to be even more frothy in a way. Like we need Mm -hmm. to have this sort of dynamic engagement in the editorial process and leadership, et cetera. And that's one thing that I've tried to do. I do a newsletter. It's on Substack. I do, you know, the stuff on Instagram. And I try to bring in like a very healthy mix of voices. So you hear the stories discussed, but from kind of a different lens.
0: So you bring in different voices. Go back to reproductive rights. I mean, obviously, abortion is a huge, very emotional issue for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Is it possible in today's environment, Jessica, that you could bring in people that have different opinions on that issue and still have not just a civil conversation, but one that maybe gets people to look at things and look at this particular issue just a little differently?
1: The answer is yes, yes. And it's very dependent on where that happens. So I started, I said, as an account on Instagram, and I made these videos. And one of the things I kept saying is, I want this to be a space where people can learn. So please don't be nasty in the comments. Mm-hmm. And I kept telling people that. And so it emerged that people started to behave that way in my comments. And when people started getting nasty, the rest of the crowd would come in and say, you can do that everywhere else on the internet. You don't, don't do that here. And we got to a place where we even had like posts on vaccines where people were firmly disagreeing without getting nasty. So I think if you set a tone where constructive engagement is the standard, you can have that. Increasingly, I don't know that that's possible on social media. And I think one of our biggest challenges now is that clearly the reach of news networks is limited, right? Fewer people are tuning in. The cords are being cut. Audiences are increasingly finding information on social media, but you don't get to actually find what you want. It's all driven by an algorithm. There are shadow bands. I don't care what they say there are. And there's like the the dials and controls are manipulating how you get to engage. And so in order to have the conversation you're talking about, I think we need new spaces and new platforms to have those kinds of conversations. And then you just do it by asking open-ended questions and allowing people to just probe one another with curiosity instead of righteousness.
0: With all your experience in and around political leaders, do you think political leaders are really talking to people where people are at or they're still reading off of their cue cards that are devised in part – by focus groups and pollsters and political operatives like myself (laughs) that draws them further away from the reality of where, you know, people are and what they want to hear.
1: I mean, you obviously believe what you're saying and I do, too. Like that's I would love to ask you that question. Yes. Uh, I think that, um, for example, politics is all about like the attack right now and it's kind of extremely mean. Right. It's just there's a lot of meanness out there. And We started the conversation with this. People literally can't take it. I mean, one of my strategies for engaging people in this election is to not talk about the election for months. I'm giving them as little coverage as possible right now because they don't want to hear it. So when something really matters, I'll bring it in and then they learn about that and then they can drop out. Like, you know, if there's a big election or a big issue, if I bombard them with the negativity that's in the conversation, In politics right now, but from today until November, they will disengage and not care. And so I really would question the campaigns, like, what are you all doing to put out a positive and constructive message and engage people beyond the Beltway media? Because this sort of vibe of hostility is not going to win over voters. Yeah,
0: because I think you can be compelling without having to be confrontational and caustic, right, to get there. I think you can get people's attention without always having to rattle the saber, as they say.
1: But can I probe you on that? Because I'm always, when I have this conversation with political consultants, what they say to me is, no, the negative message always breaks through.
0: I call it the canard over the last 25 years that It's almost like get the positives out of the way early so we can get into the confrontation, the attack, because that's the only thing that moves numbers. I think there is such white noise going on today, Jessica, because of all this negativity. If you look at the end of a campaign when you see a commercial break and there are four or five commercials from political candidates and all of them are confrontational or negative, I think it creates a white noise effect. It's like it all kind of. Blends into itself and it has no or a little impact. And we see that in polling, by the way, limited impact in the tail end of campaigns with a bombardment of ads across all mediums. I think most of it is because it's totally the same.
1: So how would you counter that? Like if you were advising somebody to do it wildly differently?
0: Well, I'm actually engaged in a campaign I can't disclose right now where we are going to do it radically differently. And hopefully six months from now, you and I can get back on the show together and we'll talk about that because I do think like you, Jessica, there's a different way. There's another way to go that can be incredibly successful for those that are seeking, you know, public office that also will lift the spirits of a country that I think needs the proverbial shot in the arm.
1: I completely agree. And I find that just explaining stuff to people enlivens them and builds their trust. They're so grateful that you've taken this anxiety away by making something clear that they become devoted.
0: Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't close the show today with a problem you had apparently not so long ago that you exposed to the national audience on Steve Colbert's show. Q clip.
1: I was also told that I have a building problem what? What? Uh, that... that means you look um, not convincing in front of buildings. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> not convincing I what? I can't make that you, We mistake you for the building. <laughs> what, 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 what does that mean? Um, I worked that over so many times in my head. I think it's because I'm petite, which is a polite way of saying short, right? Yeah, for sure. And that in the mind's eye of the producers, they thought of me as little. But everyone no. is smaller than a building. <laughs>
0: So, Jessica, (laughs) have you gotten through the building problem? I think all of America wants to know the answer to that.
1: Well, now I do news from my house in front of a bookshelf, so I don't have to worry about the building problem anymore. But it is a weird statement on like sort of what women go through in the news business, that these are the things you get judged on the building, my hair. P.S. I will tell you that when I was in network news, I would never have worn my hair curly like this because – curly hair is not allowed. So I always, as you saw in that clip, was blown out, stick straight. And so, yeah, doing it from home and on my own has been very liberating. And now I, I can be curly and not worry about buildings.
0: Jessica, thanks for being with us. Good luck with News Not Noise, which I think is is something that America desperately needs more of. That kind of seasoned reporting, by the way. And Godspeed on everything you have ahead. We have an election that's right around the corner. Heaven help all of us uh, the way it's going so far that we may come out the other end in one piece.
1: Thank you so much for this time and really a lovely conversation. I'm, I'm grateful.
0: Don't miss future episodes by following us on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platforms, or go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe for free.